episode 64 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, the podcast where we discuss all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. Welcome to the episode, Dermot. Thank you for welcoming me. <laughs> well, I, I think I'm excited for this one because we start talking about the actual text of Calypso, mm-hmm. Ulysses' fourth episode today. Mm-hmm. And you've done some wonderful artwork to show one of the scenes very early in that episode. Yes. You want to tell us something about it? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things, feeding cats. So it's Mr. Bloom and I have something in common. And it's feeding a pesky black cat. And we have one that's exactly like the cat described mm-hmm. in this episode. For anyone who knows Dermot less well than I do, you might not know Dermot's two passions in life are cats and uh-huh. breakfast food. And so I'm very excited to share with him this episode that's about, or this bit of this episode that's about cats and breakfast food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, Dermot has never read Ulysses, except the parts I've forced upon him in this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I think we're about to get to the parts you're going to actually enjoy (laughs) and not just... um, how, how would you describe your interaction with Proteus? Well, it's all been mediated through Daedalus, right? Daedalus, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. uh, I always call him either one or the other. And uh, he's kind of like heavy going, isn't he? Like he's really <laughs> heavy going. Yeah, you noticed? Oh, it's, it's, like being, yeah. it's like being me again when I was 21, 22. Mm-hmm. It's very tedious. I, I really feel sorry for people who knew me mm-hmm. at my worst, you know, if that's how they remember. So mm-hmm. it's a very honest portrayal of an angry young man. But it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's a bit of a slog, all right? Yeah. All right. Well, to get us back to what we're talking about now, you are our podcast artist. And if they would like to see your wonderful artwork for this episode, where can our listeners find that? Bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's right. Please check out bloomsandbarnacles.com, where I blog as well as a podcast and all of our show notes you can find at the website. If you'd like to support the show, you can also go to our website, which is bloomsandbarnacles.com and donate. There's a little donate button up in the upper right hand corner. And this month we'd like to thank Ellen Murphy, Margot Carroll and Anonymous, all of whom have been very generous. Yes, we really appreciate it. And uh, one thing I need to do this week is take some pictures of a couple. Well, one item, the other one hasn't come in the mail yet, uh, that is going to help us have a bigger and better podcast in the future. If you aren't uh, financially well endowed, no worries. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that does help people find the show. And if you'd like to keep up with us, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, the the sign-up form for which is at the bottom of our webpage, which is bloomsandbarnacles.com. Yep, we will never spam you. We'll just send you a newsletter once a month with with a few updates. We'll preview upcoming episodes, send you links for old episodes, and include the question of the month, which this is the second month now we've done a question of the month. And we put this up on our social media and our newsletter earlier in March. And uh, the question this month was, what do you think becomes of Stephen Dedalus after the events of Ulysses? So many people will say, oh, well, he goes on to become James Joyce and write Ulysses. But I wanted you guys to be a little more creative than that. And boy, did you deliver. Many of you think he's either going to become a Jesuit 
or maybe a ladies' man of some sort, or maybe just uh, lose his mind in Night Town. But a few of my favorites included this one from Talia on Twitter. He dissolves into Guinness foam. Yeah, he becomes a drinker is also a popular choice. Mm -hmm. uh, but this this one, I, I like the way she put that. We got, also got an email from listener Molly, and this was her idea. I like to think that Stephen made his way to Cranley's house at some point after the end of Ulysses. Where there was a reconciliation, there must have been first a sundering and all that. The next day, Stephen finds Dilly and promises to teach her French and maybe even to take her to Paris. To get money for this, he works as a French teacher at a school other than DC's, since history is clearly not his forte. I also think language could become Stephen's focus and he takes up Molly's offer to teach her Italian in return for teaching him Spanish. I like that one because it's nice. Mm. And uh, it has a happy ending, hopefully, for Dilly, because <laughs> she's a very sad case in this novel, as you'll come to see. And then from Simon on Facebook. He thought about writing a book on the events of that day, but decides that it would be too easy, so he changes his name to H-C-E, mimicking A-E, and pens a circular dream sequence. After all, he did quite like the Circe dream sections. No one reads it. Yes. Do you get Do you get it? No. So basically, he Simon turned my hard mode, which was you can't say he grows up to write Ulysses, yeah. and changed it to he ah, writes Finnegan's Wake. Gotcha. <laughs> and so. I, I just liked at the end, no one reads it. Yeah. Mm. It does worse than his alphabet poems. Mm. I, I think he should meet uh, the magician from Somerset Mom's book, which of course is based on Aleister Crowley. Mm -hmm. And they become these rampaging magicians who become involved in a magical battle against W.B. Yeats and A.E. Right. Russell. Well, that is now my answer to this question as well. <laughs> All right. Well, let us know what you think about any of those. If you'd like to get a an early preview on April's question, which I haven't thought of yet, uh, go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Anyway, let's set that behind us and get to the episode. So Dermot's going to read for us, and this is about the first page and a half of Calypso. Take us away. Mr. Leopold Bloom ate with relish the inner organs of beasts and fowls. He liked thick giblet soup, nutty gizzards, a stuffed roast heart, liver slices fried with crust crumbs, fried hen cods rose. Most of all, he liked grilled mutton kidneys, which gave to his palate a fine tang of faintly scented urine. Kidneys were in his mind as he moved about the kitchen softly, riding her breakfast things on the humpy tray. Gelid light and air were in the kitchen, but out of doors, gentle summer morning everywhere made him feel a bit peckish. The coals were reddening. Another slice of bread and butter, three, four, right. She didn't like her plate full, right. He turned from the tray, lifted the kettle off the hob and set it sideways on the fire. It sat there dull and squat, its spout stuck out. Cup of tea soon, good, mouth dry. The cat walked stiffly around the leg of the table with tail on high. Oh, there you are, Mr. Bloom said, turning from the fire. The cat mewed an answer and stalked again stiffly around the leg of the table, mewing. Just how she stalks over my writing table. Purr, scratch my head, purr. Mr. Bloom watched curiously, kindly, the lithe black form. Plain to see, the gloss of her sleek hide the white button under the butt of her tail, the green flashing eyes. He bent down to her, his hands on his knees. Milk for the pussins, he said. Meow. The cat cried. They call them stupid. 
They understand what we say better than we understand them. She understands all she wants to. Vindictive too. Cruel. Her nature. Curious mice never squeal. Seem to like it. Wonder what I look like to her. Height of a tower? Nah, she can jump me. Afraid of the chicken she is, he said mockingly. Afraid of the chuck-chucks. I never saw such a stupid pussins as the pussins. Meow, the cat said loudly. She blinked up out of her avid shame-closing eyes, mewing plaintively and long, showing him her milk-white teeth. He watched the dark eye slits narrowing with greed till her eyes were green stones. Then he went to the dresser, took the jug Hanlon's milkman had just filled for him, poured warm bubbled milk on a saucer, and set it slowly on the floor. Grrr, she cried, running to lap. He watched the bristles shining wirely in the weak light as she tipped three times and licked lightly. Wonder was it true if you clipped them the can't mouse after? Why? They shine in the dark, perhaps, the tips. Or kind of feelers in the dark, perhaps. He listened to her licking lap. Ham and eggs? No. No good eggs with this drought. One pure fresh water. Thursday. Not a good day either for a mutton kidney at Buckley's. Fried with butter, a shake of pepper. Better a pork kidney at Lugach's. While the kettle is boiling. She lapped slower, then licking the saucer clean. Why are their tongues so rough? To lap better, all porous holes. Nothing she can eat? He glanced round him. No. Thank you, Dermot. Any thoughts? Uh, it seems like you know, the only stuff that would get by me here would be fried hen cods, rose, whatever the heck those Those, those are, are all like organ meats. Yeah, they sound horrible, whatever they are. Yeah, um, they're like... The weird of the name. Nutty gizzards doesn't sound... Like, I, I love making breakfast, but my taste mm -hmm. in, in food is very working class, bland. This is... Um, uh, oh, yeah, I see. scary, you know. These, these to me seem like working class oh, foods. Oh, they're probably like hearty, like European. They sound, they strike me like European peasant food. Mm -hmm. Like one thing that I remember like an Irish radio commentator saying, and this is in the early zeros when all the Polish people were starting to mm -hmm. arrive in Ireland, was they were much more adventurous and knowledgeable about different kinds of meats and foodstuffs, but mm -hmm. the Irish tend to have a very smaller range mm -hmm. and, and are much blander about how they would prepare those things. And, um, and he said, when you go into all the Polish shops that were springing up then and you'd mm -hmm. see all the stuff that you never knew existed. It's like, it's right, you know. Um, so for me, this is my grandfather was a butcher, uh, would have been active in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Mm -hmm. So maybe he would have known what this stuff see, was. That's, but, we yeah. ate like giblets and gizzards and things like that. We'd always eat at home when I was a kid. But mm -hmm. my grandfather wasn't a butcher, but he was Polish. Yes. So yeah. I'm guessing that's where that must have come from. Perhaps. Because yeah, my yeah. American grandparents didn't eat this kind of stuff. No, no. I mean, the most we had uh, as kids was um, very, like, it was chicken or it was, you know, steak mm -hmm. or, and then as, as the 1980s yeah. would go on, the steak ran out. Like, Ooh. yeah, like it, the 80s were not fun. There's no 80s nostalgia in our household. Um, but, uh, and I, I do remember my mother occasionally getting, like, uh, liver. Mm -hmm. I remember eating liver. Ugh. Yeah, my um, grandpa liked liver. And that was about as far as we went. We we weren't eating any lower down on the animal than, than that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there, there are things that, like, they sound kind of gross to me. I, I'm a vegetarian, so I don't I don't want to eat any of this stuff. But yeah. there's no reason you couldn't eat them. Mm. They're they're perfectly good food. Yeah. Well, we, know, like, we used to eat, uh, like, a white pudding and black pudding, which yeah. is uh, pig's blood, which mm -hmm. I guess if you're, I know other people from other cultures find that, 
gross. It was mm -hmm. actually spicy and tasty and there was nothing wrong with it. Yeah, I think you mm -hmm. could feed American people black and white pudding and not tell them what's in it yep. and they will like it. Yep. And then tell them and they'll, they'll, <laughs> and they'll throw they'll a pen like, at you. Oh. Yeah. 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 I'd say in, in, in Korean food too, I think, oh, I can't remember which stew it is in Korea, but it comes with a big cube of gelled cow's blood. Mm -hmm. This is a big pink gelatinous cube in your, your bowl of soup. Yeah. Well, like a lot of the stuff, it's, it's what very hearty. It's what you're raised with, you know, um, people get mm -hmm. hooked on whatever they, yep. like a duck's egg, you know, you, the duck mm -hmm. egg. The duck hacks out of, hatches out of the egg, and that's whatever it sees first. This is the way the world's meant to be. <laughs> Anything else that jumps out in this to you? Mm. I like just the description. It's very simple, direct, mm -hmm. no crap. I'm, I'm not saying anything else is crap. I'm saying he doesn't like, he's not adding like anything, you know, like superfluous really. It's it's really direct and clear. Yeah. Um, and it's the thing that we probably have thrown anybody at the time was just the uh, unconventional, you know, stream. It doesn't have the conventional like sentence structure that a normal mm -hmm. book would. But compared to what's come before, it's it's extremely accessible. I think to yeah. anybody. Like he doesn't have quotation marks around his dialogue. All that yeah, kind of Joyce stuff. didn't like quotation marks. Mm. Marks, so he used that sort of elongated hyphen. Okay, that's that's his thing. He thought. I think, I think it's an m dash or an n dash. Okay. Okay. It, it's like three hyphens together, and mm. yeah, there's different ways of of using see, m, m and n dashes in fonts. Font. Yeah. Setting. Um, if I'm I'm going from memory, I think it was an aesthetic thing for Joyce. He didn't okay. like the way quotations look. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to apply any adjectives to it because I think he had like a specific reason he didn't like it, mm -hmm. but it was an aesthetic reason if memory serves. Yeah, I remember hitting this the first time I read Ulysses and after being abused for, you know, however many pages by Proteus, mm -hmm. you kind of hit this still expecting that it's going to be, you know, knee deep and all these esoteric references and yeah. Aristotle and I, I remember just like trying to figure out like what it means but it means what it means mm -hmm. the only bit of sub that now there's some subtext we're going to get into but the one that really jumps out at me is this paragraph says they call them stupid they understand what we say better than we understand them he's talking about his cat mm -hmm. she, and then and then it it, it changes pronouns which whenever there's a, a pronoun shift like that that's like a, a time to pay attention, as we've seen in Proteus. Mm -hmm. She understands all she wants to. Vindictive, too. Her na cruel. Her nature. Curious mice never squeal. Seem to like it. Wonder what I look like to her. So we can assume it's, it's probably a female cat that he's mm -hmm. got. But there's another very prominent her mm -hmm. who has only been referred to as she and her. Right. And who is that? The Mrs. Molly. Yeah, and you find as you get to know Bloom's thoughts, they are far less complex in the Stephen Dedalus way, but they do contain a lot of depth. He tends to think about more material things, but um, this on subsequent rereads has always stood out to me as she understands all she wants to. Like it, it's about Molly, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, vindictive too, cruel her nature. And I like this, that curious mice never squeal. I, I think the curious mice might be Leopold Bloom. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not going to call her out on anything. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, I, I kind of like that little double meaning there. But mm -hmm. it could also just be a, him thinking about his cat. Because as we go forward, you'll see he spends a lot of time just sort of taking ordinary things and turning them over in his head with this sort of pseudo-scientific point of view mm -hmm. or 
you know, kind of like a, a middle school science level point of analysis, mm -hmm. style of analysis. Yeah. So should we get into the analysis? Yeah. Speaking of analysis, yeah. I wanted to comment first on just the, the humbleness of Calypso. We really see it in the language. Um, but I was rereading um, a part of Frank Budgen's The Making of Ulysses, which Frank Budgen was a friend of James Joyce's and his book, which originally was published in the 30s, is just like transcriptions of his remembered conversations with Joyce. And it's very, it's a very, if you need a, a copy of it, I think we have a link on our site, which you'll, you'll find in the show notes for this, but we have a link to a, a full copy of it online, but it's a very good resource. Um, and he spoke quite a bit about why James Joyce thought that these kinds of mundane actions tell us a lot about a person. So I'd like you to read this quote from Frank Budgen. In the course of many talks with Joyce and Zurich, I found that for him, character was best displayed, had almost said entirely displayed, in the commonest acts of life. How a man ties his shoelaces or how he eats his egg will give a better clue to his differentiation than now he goes forth to war. And he kind of goes forward to say, like, that's in part because you tie your shoes and, eat, you know, well, if you're us, you, you eat an egg every day. You know, mm -hmm. you know, we spend a lot more time focusing on something dramatic like going to war, but it's something a person might do only once in their life. Mm -hmm. You know, it's those, those common everyday acts that really, really show us who people are. And... Leopold Bloom, who is one of the, the great literary heroes, isn't he, um, is introduced in this really both common sort of way and also like you learn right away that he's a weirdo because the first paragraph about him is how he likes this, the taste of urine. Yeah, so yeah. it's tucked in there with all those other things. But the, the tang of urine, uh, how could that not immediately pop out? Mm -hmm. um, but Budgen wrote, in the same passage that Joyce received a review of Ulysses that mentioned that his characters were really undistinguished pe people, both spiritually undistinguished and socially undistinguished, and uh, Joyce quipped. He is stating the English preference for tawdry grandeurs. Even the best Englishmen seem to love a lord in literature. Right, so if, he, if he's trying to write a new kind of novel, which really was and he's writing from an Irish point of view even though he kind of you know abandoned Ireland mm -hmm. like but I, I think he sees it necessary to write about a, a common man mm -hmm. you know not some fancy guy in his manor house but right. you know a, a, a sensitive humble guy in his uh, you know small house on right. Seven Eccles Street. The, the first thing we learn about Leopold Bloom is his love of organ meats in particular the kidney. So the kidney should stand out to us because it is the correspondent organ of Calypso. Um, and what does, what does a kidney do in the body, Dermot? It's a filter for all the, the crud, right? Yeah, right? It's a, an excretory organ. Mm -hmm. It's an organ used for waste removal. Um, and we, in a recent episode, discussed Joyce's very early poem, The Holy Office, in which he wrote that Part of an, an artist's duty, or his duty as an artist, was to act as a, a sewer or gutter or a, a purgative to um, run all the filth through to produce his art because, well, you, to find out why, go listen to the episode. We talked about it for an hour. But uh, I'd like you to read a, a quote from, okay. from that poem, The Holy Office. 
But all these men of whom I speak make me the sewer of their clique, that they may dream their dreamy dreams. I carry off their filthy streams. Yeah, so Joyce really saw the necessity of these frank depictions of bodily functions. We've already seen some of those in Proteus. Mm -hmm. Do you remember some of the some from Proteus? Oh yeah, um, Stephen was pissing on the the rocks mm -hmm. in Sandy Monstrand. And he picks his nose and wipes his booger. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. There's the dog pisses. Dog pisses. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's kind of in there, but it's still kind of tucked into this kind of highfalutin uh, stream of consciousness style writing that is not impenetrable, but it is difficult to mm -hmm. be penetrated. Uh, but, you know, here, the first thing we learn about Leopold Bloom is that, you know, he, he likes these excretory organs and he likes them because they taste like excretory organs. Um, so I, I think that is a quality he purposely built into Leopold Bloom. And this sort of violation of these sort of Victorian or technically Edwardian taboos are totally necessary to his art. And it's built into this episode from the word go. And, uh, I mean, at the end, the end of it, there's no reason to hide it, but, you know, we get a pretty detailed description of Bloom taking a poo. Joyce is just going full steam ahead with that kind of artist as, as sewer that's carrying off all these, you know, this is his function is to carry off all these filthy things and turn it into art. So he's a, an artistic kidney, mm. the, the mind of James Joyce. It also kind of makes us consider this, this cyclical nature of waste. So, you know, consider the kidney. It's an organ that processes waste. Uh, then the kidney is eaten and becomes waste that is processed through the excretory organs of Bloom over and over and over again. The cycle continues. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, wa it's waste becoming waste and being filtered through his kidney. It's a kidney being filtered through a kidney. Mm. Right. Yeah. And it, it, it's really reminiscent of that allusion back in Proteus to the, the many sacred things, whether it's communion wafers or the body of a king that must travel through the GI tract of a human or maybe a worm and come out excrement and then fertilize other things and allow more life. Mm -hmm. And the cycle continues. Do you remember that part? Yes. Yeah. All right. So that's one interpretation of the kidney. The other is that the kidney is sort of a, a burnt offering in Calypso. In this scene we've just read, he, do, he doesn't burn the kidney, but later he procures a kidney and then burns it on the stove and cuts off the burn section and gives it to his cat for breakfast. Mm -hmm. we, if we go to the Bible, we can learn from passages in Exodus and Leviticus that burning the kidneys, particularly kidneys of, of lambs, you know, a mutton kidney upon an altar is part of a, you know, Jewish tradition. Um, so let's take, for example, Exodus 29, 12 through 13. Please read that biblically for us, Dermot. And thou shalt take of the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards, and the call that is above the liver, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, and burn them upon the altar. Thank you. Or else you go to hell. 
Are you go to hell? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or I'll go into hell. I don't. I don't know that people oh, do this yeah. too much anymore. That's true. We're screwed. You know, I'm not. I'm not Jewish, but mm. I, I don't get the impression that. I think anyone's doing this. Anyway. Any, yeah. Um, do you remember? Do you recognize the phrase "horns of the altar"? Mm, no. All right. Let's uh, rewind to Proteus. Here's the line here. A choir gives back menace and echo, assisting about the altar's horns, the snorted Latin of the jack priests moving burly in their albs, tonsured and oiled and gelded, fat with a fat of kidneys of wheat. Right, so you see this kind of uh, the altar's horns, fat, kidneys, all kind of mm -hmm. existing in the same passage. Mm, right. And I looked up this phrase the horns of the altar and I found many pictures of these sort of traditional altars that have like a decorative horn at each of its four corners. Right. So I think that's what the horns of the altar means. Mm. I remember being uncertain about that in the past. So Stephen connects sacrifice and kidneys mm -hmm. and it turns out Bloom also connects kidneys and burned offerings. But not until episode number eight, Lestragonians. So, could you read the quote from that? His slow feet walked him riverward reading. Are you saved? All are washed in the blood of the Lamb. God wants blood victim. Birth, hymen, martyr, war. Foundation of a building, sacrifice. Kidney burnt offering. Druid's altars. Elijah is coming. Dr. John Alexander Doy. Restorer of the church in Zion is coming. Right, so this is all kind of Bloom's internal running monologue here. But uh, amidst it all, he mentions kidney burnt offering, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So yeah. whether he's connecting this to his own burnt kidney or not, he's, you know, connecting kidney and burnt offering. So we, we can assume he's probably aware of this ancient custom. Yeah. Later on, when we read the part about him burning his kidney, mm -hmm. we'll think about that. Right. Let's talk a little bit about his cat. Early on, I had hoped to maybe do like a full blog post slash full episode just about Bloom's cat and the symbolism of the cat. But I think sometimes a cat is just a cat. I don't really have a whole lot to analyze about the, the presence of the cat. I think the cat exists to show us about Bloom's character. Hmm. You know, not so much a uh, some kind of strange symbol. Um, we talk, we spent a lot of time talking about Tatters the dog and what yeah. he symbolizes. Yeah. But I think the cat allows us to see Bloom's kind, inherent kindness and sympathy yeah. when he regards his cat, because he he considers her in this kind of scientific way, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you know. I wonder what happened if you, he talks about their, their whiskers. Mm -hmm. If you cut their whiskers off, you know, they can't mouse, yep. you know. But I, I think he also takes this kind of emotional tilt towards it. Like, oh, yeah, but that, that you know, would be kind of cruel. Or he mm -hmm. definitely, he likes her, right? Yeah. He speaks to her in a, a cute yep. voice. And yep. I think she, she's there to catch mice. But he definitely treats her like a pet in some ways. Yeah, and he's worried about her getting food for breakfast as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we see both his, his kind of scientific mind, but also his, that he's more in touch with his emotions, you know, mm. that he can, he can look at the world and he kind of picks it apart like a, almost like a, like a, a watchmaker or something like that. He wants to pull it all apart, 
see how the, the clockwork works and just understand that. But he also, you know, sees the emotional side of things, which I think Stephen is very blind to. Yep. So we see him in contrast. And, and this is meant to be a, a mature narrative in contrast to Stephen's immature narratives in the early episodes. Mm. And another interesting thing about that then, too, is that he tries to consider the world through the cat's point of view. Like, I wonder what I look like to her. And you think of Stephen with tatters on the beach. He, ne- he never wonders right. about how, how he appears to tatters. Mm. I think he's concerned how he appears in the eyes of other people, which is, you know, we all experience that. But he, he doesn't, I think he tends to see animals as, as objects. Right. And, you know, we think about Stephen's attempts to kind of tame and control tatters uh, using his language. Specifically, we talked about that heraldic language. And Bloom ultimately just kind of accepts the cats on her own her own terms, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, she's vindictive, she's cruel, but uh, that's her nature. Right. That's just how she is. You know, you, you can't you can't tell a cat not to be a cat. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of just happy to let it be at that. He doesn't try to control her. He doesn't try to tame her. He just gives her what she likes and lets her do what she likes. And, uh, right. you know, I, I, I think that might be the difference of a, a 38-year-old man viewing his surroundings and a, a really lost 22-year-old man mm-hmm. taking in his surroundings. Right. Do you relate to this all at all as a cat lover? Yeah, and slow, a person, if there's a word for slowly being driven insane by cats, then I'm also <laughs> that too. But he only has one and we have seven. So. Yeah. Yeah, they, cats also, and, and in opposition to a dog, a, mm-hmm. a cat is more alien. You're, I was kind of wondering what the hell's, like, we also have, I should say, crows. They're even worse. Um, <laughs> you, you don't have crows. They've you cannot got us. own a crow. Well, no, yes. they, they demand food and I have to give it to them. Um, but yeah, they're even more alien, um, extremely intelligent, but there's something going on there that you're never going to be able to crack. Mm-hmm. But you can tell at least with the cats, they do seem genuinely affectionate. Mm-hmm. People say they're not, but I think those of us who have cats know they are. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, but they don't have the loyalty that a dog would have. Mm-hmm. Dog is certainly like a lot closer to a human. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, the fact that he's working so hard to like figure out this like weird little creature. Yeah, so yeah. he's not just, he's not writing, he's not Cartesian about it. He's mm-hmm. not just looking at it like it's a machine, a mindless machine. Mm-hmm. Like it has its own essence. So do you, how, how do you like Bloom so far? Oh, he's nice, yeah. yeah. Every, everybody likes Bloom. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he grows on you. Mm. All right. So I want to spend the rest of this episode then talking a little about, a little bit about his home at Seven Eccles Street, which mm-hmm. we've been, we've seen just a glimpse of in this passage here. Seven Eccles Street was a real place in Dublin, was is the key word in that sentence. Um, it's on Dublin's north side. And if you, you can go to Eccles Street, Eccles Street is still there, but on the side of the road that would have had number seven is now the expanded uh, Matter Misericordia, Misericordia Hospital. And there's a nice plaque on the side of their building with a picture, uh, like a, a relief sculpture of James Joyce on it, mm-hmm. letting you know this is where... Seven Echo Street used to be. Something interesting got demolished. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we've been there. Do you remember when we went there? I don't. Honestly, and I should. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were going around the the, the north mm-hmm. at that time. Our, right? our friend Owen took us around. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we, we got there at night. So we have we have pictures of it. Oh, it's, that yeah. Aren't... Yeah, that's probably why it was so dark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I remember it very well. And reading Calypso 
to put this section together in our blog was the first time I'd revisited Calypso in a few years. Mm -hmm. And it was so clear what the neighborhood looked like from having been there uh, that if you are, if it's within your five kilometers, Irish people, and uh, you haven't been there, I would re strongly recommend going and walking around the neighborhood. And if you're not within five kilometers of Eccles Street. Or you're listening after this stupid yeah, chicken disease um, is not here. Go anymore. there. It, it will really change the way you picture it. Hmm. Um, and it, it's really valuable. It's a good experience to have if you're very, if you're into Ulysses enough to read our, or to listen to our podcast. <laughs> uh, so in 1904, 7 Eccles Street was empty. Thus, Joyce felt that uh, the Blooms could occupy it. And there's no one living there then. Don Gifford, in his famous annotated Ulysses, wrote, Eccles Street in 1904 was regarded as a, sed a sedate and respectable neighborhood, solidly middle class, and not at all shabby as what is left of it today is. And he wrote that in the 1980s. Mm. So how, what was North Dublin like in the 1980s? Uh, we were, we could have taxied through it from the airport once and the taxi driver said, Ah, oh, Jesus, this part of the city is Little Beirut. And that's what they, okay. some people would call it. And, yeah. uh, you know, things have changed since then too. Mm -hmm. I think there's still probably parts of it that are pretty dodgy, but it, it has a reputation as, as the rougher side of Dublin. Mm -hmm. And the South has a reputation as the nicer side of Dublin. But mm -hmm. you'll find good and bad on both sides, mm -hmm. of course. But since then, there's yeah. been a lot of gentrification. Yeah. And I think if you would want a house on Eccles Street today, you better uh, start saving. Money, yeah. Yeah. Um, Frank Budgeon, who we mentioned earlier, pointed out that Bloom's neighborhood had in 1904, kind of the appearance of being originally bourgeois, but now had a more, he said, working class mm -hmm. vibe. I said vibe. He didn't say vibe. And that was his take on it in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. um, and that's essentially accurate. It was it was built by people with money and then gradually declined. Um, in 1909, to go a little bit further back, Joyce's friend John Francis Byrne lived at that address. And if we talked about we talked about him in an episode called Cranley's Arm, and we also talked about um, his time living at 7 Eccles Street and who was the real Leopold Bloom, so go check out those episodes if you want to know more about him. In the 1930s, so to jump ahead in time from 1909, uh, Budgeon says that 7 Eccles Street had become a tobacconist and a small general store. And Budgeon's book was originally published in 1934. Mm -hmm. Um However, by the in the 1950s, uh, 7 Eccles Street had taken quite a tumble as it had been converted into tenement housing and there were roughly seven families occupying this single family home in the 1950s. There's a really excellent article. A lot of what I'm going to quote in this next section comes from that article on the James Joyce online notes by scholar Ian Gunn, who's done a lot of research into the, you know, what became of Seven Eccles Street. And uh, this was a quote from that article. It'll be linked in our show notes. So go, please go there and read it. And there are images of Seven Eccles Street throughout the years. It's a really, really good article. But he um, interviewed a man named Liam O'Connor in 2012. And this is what Mr. O'Connor had to say, because he lived in Seven Eccles Street in the 50s. This room was home to my parents and five older siblings during the 1940s. 1939, when my parents married until 1949, at the window would probably be my three older sisters or maybe my older brother. 
the He's house. He's referring to a, a photograph that's on the page. You have to go there to see it. The house would have had two families on each floor and one in the basement, making seven families in total. It was known as a closed hall door tenement. Right. And once you label something a tenement, it gets a certain reputation. Mm, that's a lot of people packed into a tiny space yeah. with no privacy. Yeah. And, yeah. and very dodgy toilets, I would imagine. Yeah, that would yeah. be awful. So around the same time, too, 1954, uh, an artist named John Ryan held the first Bloomsday celebration. Uh, there's a great video of that. You can see him in it with uh, Patrick Kavanaugh and uh, Flann O'Brien mm -hmm. and uh, kind of cavorting around the Martello Tower and uh, having a piss against the wall, just yeah. like uh, dear Stephen Dedalus. So that was also going on at the same time. As this, this house had fallen into decay, people in Ireland were, you know, starting to, be, I think, become first kind of the literary crowd, mm -hmm. becoming more interested in Ulysses. But keep in mind that Ulysses, you know, wasn't available in Ireland until the 1960s. So I, I remember reading, too, I think it's in the same article by Ian Gunn about... Um, more and more people, often foreign visitors, were kind of wandering down Eccles Street looking for Leopold Bloom's house. Yeah. And one of the residents who were living there when it was a seven-family tenement, like, the, the residents started to think, like, this can't be from some book I've never heard of. There has to be, like, treasure hidden on this property or something. Why do all these fancy people keep showing up wanting to see inside my house? Yeah. And uh, that quote you read references a, a photograph it wasn't taken by his family it was taken by oh, i can't remember who but it's it's taken from across the street you can see children looking out the window mm -hmm. yeah so there was this sort of scholarly interest in the house right. starting to percolate in the 50s as you know ulysses got a, a, a solid foothold right. um which brings us into the 1960s and ian gunn says that number seven was hit by a perfect storm of issues that came together just before the cultures of Joyce, architectural conservation, and tourism in Dublin were starting to change. So now we're getting into the part of what happened to Seven Eccles and why is there just a, a plaque on a different building commemorating it. Um, in the 60s, other similar houses, so these houses that started out as single-family homes but had been converted into low-income housing for multiple families, there were a number around the city that collapsed and killed people, including children. And um, it led similar houses in throughout Dublin to be inspected, which they had been completely neglected for mm -hmm. decades. Um, you know, if you think between 1904, when this was kind of a, a, a middle-class neighborhood, you know, maybe some shabbiness over a former gentility. It was now kind of middle to working class. Now it, w it was... It was it was condemned mm -hmm. is what ended up happening is that inspectors showed up for the first time after 60 years of neglect mm -hmm. and were like, oh, my God, no, people can't live here. This isn't safe. Um, in the mid 60s, 1965, to be exact, um, author Anthony Burgess, who wrote an excellent book about Joyce's works called Rejoice, probably best known for writing A Clockwork Orange. He made a documentary show for BBC One about Seven Eccles Street called Silence, Exile, and Cunning. And he apparently said that while he was making this, he drank very heavily, and he's fairly drunk whenever he's on screen because it was just in <laughs> such a state. 
And there's an amazing photograph that was taken at that time of Burgess, I think, on the second floor of the house, looking out from the back where the, the back wall is completely off. Mm -hmm. And there's just rubble everywhere. I'm going to uh, borrow that from the James Joyce online notes and put that in our show notes so you can see it. But there are many other images of Seven Eccles Street that are also on that James Joyce online notes page. And uh, I'll put the link to that at the bottom under further reading. So please mm -hmm. check those out. They're well worth your time to see. The following year in 1966, oh, I'll say too, I spent the last week or so trying to find a copy of Silence, Exile, and Cunning because I'm extremely interested in seeing it to see Seven Eccles Street at the end of its life on a video format. Narrated by someone like Anthony Burgess is absolutely something I want to see. It's very hard to track down. Mm -hmm. So if you know someone who has a copy of it, I am working on finding it. Um, I'd like to see it at some point, even if I have to like go to England to watch a VHS copy of it. I do want to see it eventually. But if you know of an electronic version, that would be awesome. Let's, let's go ahead one year to 1966, uh, where Swiss Joyce scholar Fritz Sen uh, was quoted in the Irish Times as saying, so Dermot, go ahead and read this passage from the Irish Times of that year. After saying a lot of nice things about our contemporary poets, playwrights and authors, the hard-headed Swiss came to the surface. What are you people going to do about preserving Bloom's house on Neckel Street? I went along to see it and I thought it was a great pity to see it decayed and neglected. His idea is to launch a public fund, buy the house and turn it into a sort of central old Dublin academy with a Joyce room, a Swift room, a Wild room, etc. You'll need something like this for scholars coming here. At the moment, anyone interested in Joycey in Dublin is completely lost in the city unless he's made contacts beforehand. And what really struck me reading this is it's so similar to the arguments around the 15 Usher's Key House. Never changed, has it? Yeah, that was, it belonged to Joyce's relatives and it was, you know, the house that appeared in the mm -hmm. short story, The Dead. Yeah. You know, or we can even talk about, you know, Sweeney's Pharmacy and the efforts to... Which are, again, preserved by um, enthusiasts mm -hmm. and uh, not by, like, formal arms of the Irish state. Yeah. The Martella Tower, the same. That was in danger for a while. Mm -hmm. I think Vince, one of the guys told us, Vincent Brown, the journalist, was involved in trying to save the, the tower. Even though Vincent doesn't have, like, he he's not particularly a Joycey and he just recognised the historical value. It's crazy. Uh, and the thing about Usher's Key that's really insufferable is that the country's swim, swimming in money in the 90s and the early zeros. If, if they had wanted, the state had wanted to save these places, they could have mm -hmm. done it by, by a, the wave of a wrist. It was nothing to them to buy a small piece of property like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just that lack of interest. Mm -hmm. you know? And like, like friend Jack said, they'll, they'll, they'll tear it down and put up a plaque. That's mm -hmm. all they do. The whole city will be just a bunch of plaques eventually. Yeah, and you look where in the mid sixties this is these these are coming from, you know, Swiss and, and English mm -hmm. people with interest in this. Yeah. It's not that people in Ireland weren't interested. Like we said in nineteen fifty four was the first Bloomsday held right. by these Irish writers and artists. But, you know, they they were outliers mm -hmm. and Ulysses wouldn't have been very widely read in Ireland except by people who had some kind of overseas contact. Right. And I, and I mean, to be perfectly honest, and the, the schooling to be able to read it, like Ulysses is not an easy book. Right. It's it's not exactly a, a, a beach read. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's the... It, it's I 
there's part of me that feels like it, it might be asking a lot of people who don't have very much to value something like that for a, you know, literary reason. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's, that's too uh, dismissive or anything like that, but um, it, it just, it seems like in a, a part of the city that was so impoverished to, you know, say like, we need to save this one house on the street because it belonged to a fictional person. Right. When everything else around it is falling down, it's just, yeah. it would be a lot to ask. In 1965, the country's poor, mm-hmm. you know, but by, by 2000, 2005, before the crash, there was no shortage of mm-hmm. money. And For the Usher's Key House. Usher's Key House, yeah. yeah, if somebody wanted to try to, to, serve, to preserve it or put it in trust or whatever, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. No, it's with Ireland. It's always the same. It's like it's it's always the the quick, easy fix, mm-hmm. and the cheap one. Yeah. Always. It's really depressing. It's very rare that they do something right. When they do it right, they do it right. But it's it drives me nuts. You know, we complain about America a lot in this household, but uh, <laughs> there's plenty too. of things about Ireland that drive me crazy, and that's mm-hmm. one of them. Like just find another few thousand and do it right, and they will cut that few thousand out and do it wrong. Yeah. There was also, I think, a push in the 60s, too, where people were like, why do we need to save Georgian houses? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's a symbol of like a colonial past. Right. Right. Um, and let's put up all these 1970s Hawkins House. Right. Hall yeah. Monstrosities, and I think people, people at that time saw, you know, more prestige and a more modern design yeah. that the Georgian houses, if you take away the, the, the political reason like Georgian houses also to many people look like a shabby Dublin. That mm-hmm. that's what the the poor parts of Dublin look like were these Georgian buildings. Right. And if we were to replace them with something shiny and new, then Dublin looks more modern and it doesn't look old fashioned and poor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now they were blind to the the stuff they were tearing down and the stuff they were putting up. The vast majority of those modern buildings were uh I actually was, I did an article on it a while back in one of the Irish papers that the architect who had been complaining that uh, those Georgian buildings weren't meant to last, they should be torn down, we need to replace them with all these like international style modern glass boxes. Uh, most of his buildings have been torn down. He, like, he lived long enough to see almost every building mm-hmm. that he had built in the 60s and 70s torn down. They're all crap. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they're not designed to last and the Georgian buildings are still standing. Far more of yeah. them are still standing than those 70s, 80s architects. And I, I would say, too, like just from an architectural point of view, when you walk around the parts of Dublin city centre that have been replaced with those mid-20th century buildings, mm. you could be in any any city yeah. on Earth. Like, and, and now the stuff that they're building looks like mm. Portland or Seattle. Like, yes, I yes. Can... We were in North Dublin a, a couple of years ago now, and I, I felt like I was in Portland. Yeah. Like, the buildings look the same, whereas... When you're I, I'm, in, not, I'm not old Portland, like the new crappy crap that they're putting up. When you're yeah. in somewhere like Marion Square, like it, it just has such a distinctive look. Mm-hmm. And Dublin, I think, in, in part because there wasn't money to fix things up, is one of the, f- like, my understanding is it's one of the few, like, Georgian cities mm-hmm. in, in Europe where the, the buildings yes. date from that period and it does give it a very singular look. Yeah, so, no, definitely. Um, Portland, you know, before, I, I've lived here before the boom and as the boom hit. And it was shocking to see how, how quickly they did the same thing here. They would rip down anything old. And if you, if you come from a place like I do that doesn't have craftsman homes and that, those kind of mm-hmm. like buildings, it's shocking to see them torn down and, and replaced with generic boxes built out of cardboard. 
and and the, the, the we're speaking right now from a house built in 1920 mm -hmm. and it's a over 100 years old now and it's still standing as strong as it ever did and these new ones going up will not it's mm -hmm. the same thing like it's just it's a fad a fashion or it's a way to make some cheap money and and the future be damned somebody yeah. else will have to worry about it when I the mean, building starts coming apart i come from chicago which is like we, we see architecture as such like an integral part of our heritage. And it's because Chicago was a huge architecture city. Mm -hmm. You know, like people like Frank Lloyd Wright and Louis Sullivan came out of Chicago. And, you know, we take such pride in that. And, and the, all the beautiful buildings mm -hmm. we have downtown and living in Portland has really made me realize I take that kind of architectural beauty for granted. Yeah. It's, Portland is just so indistinct. Like you could be anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's just there's a few nice buildings, but yeah. most of them are... You blink and you miss. You know, mm -hmm. Not even you blink and you miss it. It's just it doesn't look like anywhere. Yeah. Um, so Dublin, don't do that. So let's uh, let's read this quote from Ian Gunn, uh, which comes from the same article I've been referencing. Unfortunately, there were so many buildings at risk, and understandably, attention was focused on the bigger, grander houses with notable features to save. Number seven was a modest house by Georgian standards of no great architectural value. Its claim to fame was literary, and worse still, based around a fictional character. As a result, it was only literary people who noted the problems, and the tourist value hinted at above was not at that time recognised by the wider population. Yeah, and those to him are the kind of final nails in the coffin of Seven mm. Eccles Street. It's like Baker Street in London, right, with Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Yeah. But it's still standing in London. That brings us to 1967, when Seven Eccles Street is partially demolished. Uh, John Ryan, the Dublin artist, broadcaster, and man of letters, who we mentioned before, had organized that first Bloomsday in the mid-50s. He, under somewhat mysterious circumstances, <laughs> rescued the front door and its surrounding masonry and installed it in his pub, the Bailey, on Duke Street, which is right across from Davy Burns, mm -hmm. where Bloom eats... The, the moral pub Davy Burns, uh, where Bloom eats his right. sandwich and drinks his burgundy. That's the one off Grafton Street? Yes. Yeah. Mm. But he installed it in the Bailey, uh, which he had purchased in 1957 and had made a hangout for writers. So that door... And like if you go in there, there's still like Joyce memorabilia in mm -hmm. the Bailey. I think there's a big portrait of Joyce and a few other bits and bobs. I, Davy Burns is kind of the same. I think Davy Burns actually has a sign that's like, this is the Leopold Bloom pub. Mm -hmm. Pay no attention to the man across the street. Yeah. But they're both, I think, worth visiting. If we, We've been to Davy Burns, Dermot. We have not been in the Bailey. Bailey, but that's right. They would both be worth visiting. You know, if for no other reason, the Bailey is where people like Patrick Kavanaugh hung out, you mm -hmm. know? Like, you know, saying living in Chicago, like there's a pub in my neighborhood where Saul Bellow and Dylan Thomas used to hang out. So mm -hmm. that's, to me, this is... You know, same idea. It's just cool to be in the same place as those those people were. So that that kind of seems like the end for Seven Eccles Street because it was in the, in the 80s. Uh, Seven Eccles was raised to make way for the expansion of the, the Matter Hospital. And that's why you'll find the plaque on the front of that today. Right. Um, it's worth walking past in part because if you look at the other side of the street, you see buildings that would look pretty similar to what Seven Eccles would look like. Okay. Um and, uh, you know, you're an imaginative person if you're listening to this podcast. So, uh, you know, go and use your imagination and you, you'll see other little touches in the neighborhood that 
are hinted at in Calypso, which takes place in the area. Uh, in 1995, that doorway that John Ryan had rescued was installed at the James Joyce Center, uh, which is a, a few blocks away. I think it's Greater George's Street. Uh, Google it. You will get the exact address. Um, where it is still installed today, and I will put a picture of me standing next to it <laughs> on the um, yes, the show notes. And um, what else do I want to say? Go visit that, too. It's well worth your time. You'll be able to travel again, and the James Rice Center is really cool. And the... Oh, I think in the in the 2010s, there, someone came out of the woodwork and was like, I, I have the knocker. Um... And he said that he had, like, snuck in and, like, taken it off the door at some point and then, like, flew back to New York where he lived. Mm -hmm. Like, he was, like, a, a tourist. Right. Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, we've got a couple of those. So, yeah, huh. I think the... I, I don't know what the deal with that is, but there you can go knock the knocker at the James Joyce Center when you're mm -hmm. there. Um, that was fun when we went to, to go yeah. see that door. That was good. I, yeah. I, I don't know that it meant anything to you at the time, but... Mm -hmm. When you think about all this, the next time we're in Dublin, would you want to go see it again? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I'd like to visit all the haunts again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I think, can we say we're, like, moving back to Ireland eventually? In eventually. The next couple of years. Yeah. And then when that happens, too, that'll be really interesting because I think it'll give us more chances to yeah. do stuff that we can't do from the wrong side of the world. <laughs> from a different side of the world. <laughs> all right. That's all I got. You have any thoughts to close on? No, no. It's just uh, nice to be dealing with cats and kidneys and breakfast yeah those are those are all Dermot's <laughs> enthusiasms yeah and uh don't take the architecture the beautiful architecture in your city for granted yeah. because uh, people go blind to it yeah i watch shows from home now i'm like oh my god mm -hmm. and when i'm back home as well it's like going through the merchant's arch like god people have no idea mm -hmm. and they all think oh i want to go to america it's be great in america it's so fantastic like, wake oh, up we've got Good great god. stuff though Oh, there's great stuff in America, but you don't, mm -hmm. the Irish just don't know what they've got. I had to leave for 30 years to like <laughs> finally see it. You know? Yeah. And uh, do yourself a favor this week and read the, the Demise of Ithaca. I've got my further reading notes up here now by Ian Gunn. It's on James Joyce Online Notes, jjon.org. It will be linked on our site. Fascinating article that led me going down lots of odd little rabbit holes in the last week trying to track down information about this house. So... Mm. Um, and some really interesting photographs in there as well as info. So please read that. It goes way more in depth than we did. We did kind of the just skimming the surface version. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if you don't live in Dublin, uh, you know, so give it, throw, throw a few uh, beans towards the local architectural preservation society. Your town has one and they would appreciate it. Mm. Yeah. Um, that's all for me. Okay, bye. All right, see you in two weeks. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Blooms and Barnacles podcast. Your support means the world to us. You can subscribe to Blooms and Barnacles on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other place you listen to podcasts. You can also stream our episodes at our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. That's bloomsandbarnacles.com. If you've enjoyed our podcast, you can do one of three things to help support us. Number one, please donate at bloomsandbarnacles.com. The PayPal donate button is at the upper right-hand corner of the page. This helps us pay for coffee and for hosting fees. Two, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice. 
This helps more people find our show. And three, share us with a friend who you think would enjoy Blooms and Barnacles. Blooms and Barnacles is also a blog. We post new articles and original artwork semi-regularly at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Never miss an update by following us on social media. Search for our group Blooms and Barnacles Podcast on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BarnacleCast. You can also send us an email at bloomsandbarnacles at gmail.com. That's blooms, A-N-D, barnacles at gmail.com. We met some of our favorite podcast friends through random emails and social media DMs. We'd love to hear from you too, so don't be afraid to shoot us a message anytime. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks. Bye for now.